Let me introduce our speaker today. James Barron is an attorney, has a, a, a law practice here in town. And James and I got connected uh, 22 or three years ago in that time frame. And uh, we had an affinity in the subject of or the area teaching of grace. And so we started communicating, started talking. Uh, James' background, he came out of, well, he can tell you that if he wants to, but uh, grace has really liberated his life. Uh, he's so full of the word. Uh, I love him, admire him, and really deeply appreciate his uh, help uh, in our church as far as the message of grace is concerned. And when I, I just completed this six-week series on Experience Grace, and if you weren't here, uh, those CDs are available. I'd love for you to get those and listen to them. But in the midst of our talking on Wednesday evenings, uh, as we went through this uh, series on Sundays and then talked about it on Wednesday nights, um, in the course of that, talking to individuals and people, there was a particular passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that a few people raised at times uh, talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And I know James has uh, dealt with this passage of Scripture in a way that I believe is accurate. And I wanted him to, to cover that with all of us today. We'll be back next Sunday uh, speaking. So uh, listen with your heart. Listen with your mind. Listen with intent to understand truth today as James presents it, if you would, please. So won't you give a welcome to James Barron, my friend. I think as we are beginning to, to see more and more of the, of the awesome grace of God and the finished work of Christ, I know that there are certain scriptures that we've been taught in the past that are in our heads. And I think what happens, it's, it's a, I think a strategy of the enemy actually is to take a scripture and put the wrong meaning to the scripture and have, try to implant that wrong meaning in you so that when you read that scripture, you're automatically uh, deterred from the truth of what that scripture is really saying. In other words, he's hiding the truth of what's really there by giving you the wrong interpretation. Peter said that no scripture is of any private interpretation. And the word in the Greek there, private, means their own interpretation. There's no scripture of anybody's own interpretation or anybody's own idea, but the Holy Spirit moved through men and penned the mind of God in those scriptures. So there is, a, there is an understanding in those scriptures that we're to know, and if we, are, um, if we have in our thinking scriptures from some man's own interpretation, then what happens, I believe, is that the Spirit of God in us is expanding in us. In, in terms of, when I say expanding, I think that as our mind is being renewed, there's a growth of a, of a, of a, uh, of a ability to receive more. Uh, David said, enlarge my heart, Lord, that I might receive more. And there's an expanding of our sense of need of him, our complete need of him, and of his utter, utter willingness to give himself to us. So as we grow in this incredible sense of need of him and aware of his awesome desire to give himself to us. It's a perfect match. 
God seeks the weak. He seeks the foolish. He seeks those who feel like I can't pull it off. God says, hot dog, let's go. He loves a little David against a Goliath. He loves somebody who feels like I can't figure this out. He goes, it's about time I got somebody who'll listen to me. Because everybody who thinks they've got it figured out won't listen to him. Jesus said, if you say you see, then you're still blind. But if you say you're blind, you shall see. It's part of God's ways. I tell you what happened to me years ago that really helped, I think, helped trigger. Because I was a believer for like 10 years. And I labored under law and grace in my thinking for about 10 years. And, and Paul said a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And eventually you just get burned out. You just feel like I can't live this life. I can't do it. I can't pull it off. And, and um, what happened with me was I got to the end of myself and I just said, God, I, I can't do this. I just can't do this. And the verse that came to me that, that really helped change things in my life was the verse that said, call unto me. I think it's Jeremiah 33, 3 or something like that, but it says, call unto me and I will answer thee and I will show thee great and mighty things that you know not. And it's the I know not part that really helped me. Because as long as I thought I knew it, I mean, I was teaching Bible studies and doing all, as long as I thought I knew it, he couldn't really show me the great and mighty things. And there, there's something about in the ways of God that when you say, I know not. And you know, and Paul says, even Paul himself said, if any man thinks he knows anything, then just tell him he doesn't know anything, anything like he should know because there's so much of him. What's cool about God is that there's a simplicity in God, in Christ, that it's, that's not complicated, um, yet it is rich with complications, if that makes any sense. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. So you don't have to go try to figure out everything, you just know him. Jesus himself is my wisdom. Jesus himself, our life, okay. So anyway, um, so what, I guess the first thought I wanted just to bring forth is that this, this idea, I think we're in the mess we're in as far as the church worldwide over the centuries, the mess we're in because we have listened to men tell us what the scripture says as opposed to us hearing men, but hearing men with an ear toward heaven and an eye on the scripture, like the Bereans, searching the scriptures to see if the things these men are telling us be so. We are like, it's part of our fallenness, I believe, the flesh. Um, when when uh, the law came to Moses, through Moses, um, the people told Moses, don't let God speak to us. You speak to God and then come and tell us what God said. It's part of our fallenness. When, when, uh, when the Lord walked in the cool of the garden in the beginning, the scripture says the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord was in the midst of the garden. And when they ate of that tree, wasn't that awesome what Bob Hamp shared last Sunday? Awesome. If you didn't get the uh, CD or if you weren't here, please get the CD last Sunday about the two trees in the garden. Rich, rich truth about how we got in this mess as a, as a human race and what God has done in Christ. But here's... Adam hiding himself in fear, the first mention of fear in the scripture, hiding from the voice of God because he had become so self-aware and eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we've said this before, but 
Remember this, the sin in the garden was not that they wanted to be like God. God wants us to be like him. He made us in his own image. The sin in the garden was not that we were, they were trying to be like him. The sin was that the enemy tempted them to try to be like God without God. You can do this if you knew what he knew. If you had the knowledge of right and wrong, you could pull it off. That's in our fallenness. That's in the flesh. We still have that thinking. We're born of that in the flesh that we can pull it off. We can do it. That's why, saints, grace is a revelation. It must be revealed to us. Their eyes were open in the garden to their nakedness, but, and the enemy was, was glad to open their eyes to themselves, but God called that blindness because now they were just, they looked at themselves, they focused on themselves, and they, they lost sight of their source, their life, which was Christ, which was God himself. God never intended us to live this life on our own. He, he made us with a spirit so he could join himself who is spirit to us. We now in Christ have been joined to the Lord, the scripture says. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit within. And notice it's not the tree of life. I'm sorry, it's not the tree of the knowledge of life, but it's the tree of life. It's not just knowledge, it's life. We have life now in Christ and that brings a, lot, uh, that brings a knowledge, but it brings a living knowledge, not a knowledge of right and wrong necessarily. We know what's right and we know what's wrong because we know God. But primarily the tree of life brings a knowledge of God. We come to know him and who he is and what he's like. And so then when that which is evil comes, we say, that's not like him. And when that which is good comes, we say, that's not like him. But we don't live by the knowledge of good and evil. We live by him and who he is in a relationship so that when that which is not like him comes by, we go, that's not like him. And when that which is like him comes by, we go, that's like him. That's just like my God. That's just like him. I love that verse where Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, he said, uh, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. See, knowing the heart of God as mercy is one of the key things the tree of life brings to us. It's a revelation of his heart. It's a revelation of his heart. When he revealed himself to Moses, the very first thing he said was, the, he said, I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, full of loving kindness. So anyway, I just want to share some thoughts quickly about that, that we need to rely on the Spirit of God. Um, and I'm not talking about a fleshly kind of arrogance that says, nobody can teach me anything, I don't need anybody, uh, Lone Ranger kind of stuff that I'm going to do my own deal. I'm not talking about that. That's a fleshly response to what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is a humble attitude of hearing the voice of Christ through our brother and sister, a humility that says, Yes, but I recognize he is, he is just a man. She is just a woman. I'm listening for the voice of Jesus in her, and I'm, I'm looking into the Scripture to search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. If we would do that, we would be miles ahead of this thing, because way ahead because the Spirit of God is so ready to reveal the things of God to us. I mean, that's the promise, that who can know these thoughts but the Spirit of God? Who can know the thoughts of God but the Spirit of God? And he has been given to us, the Scripture says, that we might know these things that are freely given to us. And we can circle freely. It's an adventure. It's an awesome adventure to, as he unlocks the revelation of his Son and the Christ and who we are in him. As we see who he is, we see who we are. And, we be, and the freedom begins to come forth in our lives because of that that dynamic of life that works in us and so 
mysterious way. You know, the Scripture says, great is the mystery of our union with Him. Like a husband and a wife, Paul says, he goes, I know this mystery is great, but so is Christ in the church in union with each other, bone of His bone, flesh of His flesh. Great is the mystery of that union. Paul says, great is the mystery of your godliness. Great is the mystery of your godliness. If your Christianity has no mystery to it, then it's probably not his, it's not truth because there's a mystery to all this. We, we don't have to figure it all out. That's what's so great about it. I love that parable where Jesus told the parable about the man who planted the seed and he went out day and night to see it grow and he saw it grow and, and the, Jesus told this parable and he said, and the man saw this and, and it's, the scripture says how it, the man said how it grew, I knew not. How it grew, I knew not. But the earth brought forth fruit of herself. And it's a rest. We don't have to have it all figured out. We just have to know that Christ himself is our wisdom. Okay, let's look at this real quick. Um, First Corinthians, let's take a look at this. And then, uh, oh my gosh, time flies. You know what? Let's, let's, Go to Hebrews real quick. When you get a chance to read that verse in the Corinthian letter, it's awesome about how God reveals himself by the Spirit as we rely on on the Spirit to teach us these things. Okay, this is, I love this verse in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And we'll just go to this verse first. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, this is Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, look how tender God is to say that. Since the children, God sees us since the children, since his children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Awesome heart of God to people. See, it's important what we believe about what happens when we die as believers because it affects all your life. I mean, all their lives, they lived in fear of what would happen after death. It wasn't death itself they were afraid of. It was the unknown of what happens after death. And the enemy had the power of death because he had the power to tempt, to cause man to sin, and sin brought death. And so where sin is, the law of sin and death was at work. Man had a destiny with God, for the scripture says in the next verse that it is appointed unto man once to die and face the judgment. Let's look at that real quick. This is the verse you hear at funerals all the time, and they don't finish reading that verse. They always hear at a funeral that is appointed unto man once to die and afterwards face the judgment. But the next verse is awesome. Let's see. Let's go with uh, chapter 9, Hebrews, please, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Saints, think about this, now to appear in the presence of God for us. When does he stop appearing in the presence of God for us? This judgment seat of Christ that we're going to talk about in a minute, one, real briefly, um, 
Does he stop appearing in the presence of God for us at that judgment seat? Of course not. This is so cool. He appears in the presence of God for us. Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So it's not like the writer is actually saying that this sacrifice of sin was for all people, for all sin, for all time. Otherwise, he would have to have suffered or died every single day from the foundation of the world if we look at forgiveness of sins on a daily basis. If we look at it as the old covenant had a daily basis, a daily cleansing or daily covering of sin, then if Christ had that type of forgiveness, a daily forgiveness that we have been taught in many circles is the way the Christian lives with a daily forgiveness and a daily cleansing, then he would have to have suffered often, which means every day, since the foundation of the world to cover everybody's sins every day. So what the writer is saying here is that this work of God is not an earthly work with an earthly tabernacle made with hands, but a heavenly, the true tabernacle, the heavenly realm, he gave himself up by the eternal spirit in a great mystery where he who is before all things and all things came by him and were made through him, he came into our time and space, offered himself up with, as a man in, through the eternal spirit so that he offered himself up outside of time and space as well as inside of time and space and took care of everything for all time. And I, you know, who knows how to explain that, but it is one of the mysteries of how this Christ can take all of our sins away. I tell you, God's, God's passion is that we have great joy in what he has done. He wants us to not be afraid. His heart was, I'm come to take away that fear forever, forever. Verse 27, and inasmuch as it is appointed to men for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many or of the many or the multitude or in other places of the world will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Isn't that cool? So every man has an appointment with death and judgment. Every man has an appointment with death and judgment. And judgment. Every man and woman has an appointment to meet God and give an account of their life before God, every single person. So what happened was the father said, I'm sending my son to take that appointment for all who will believe. He took my appointment with death and judgment. He took my appointment with death and judgment. So what, le- what is left for me to do when I appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to look at that in a minute in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What happens when I appear before the judgment seat of Christ if he took my appointment with death and judgment for all my sin? I love what Abby said a while back. She said, she said I'm, I'm not going to be held accountable for my sins. And that's exactly what the scripture says. We're not in Christ. Abby said, I'm going to be held accountable for what Jesus did in his body. 
In other words, I'm not going to be held accountable for what I've done in my body, whether it be good or evil. I'm going to be held accountable for what Jesus did in his body. Thou hast prepared for me a body, Lord. He is partaker of flesh and blood for the children. I'm going to be held accountable for what Jesus has done in his body, which means by simple faith in what he did for me, I I am, accountable. I am accountable before God for being perfect. That's it. I am, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And sorry to tell you, you are going to be held accountable for being flawless, blameless. That is the good news. Okay. This is so cool. Look how it says they eagerly await him. He came the first time to take away sin. His second, his second appearance, his second coming is to take you away, to take his bride away. He came first to take sin away, that the, all your life on earth you would not live in fear of death anymore, not be worried about what's going to happen when you stand before God and give an account of your life because you will give an account. Everybody will give an account and say, and what basically the, the account will be, what did you do with Jesus? That's it. What did you do with him? That's why Paul says the day is coming when God will judge the whole world by one Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean he's going to judge the whole world with Jesus being the perfect standard and he measures our life to see if we lived up to that standard. No, he's going to judge the whole world by one Christ Jesus, which means if you're not as he is, you're out. And that's the good news for he as he is, so are we in him. Awesome. No fear. Boldness to enter into the throne of grace now to find help and mercy in time of need. And even more boldness, eagerly awaiting his second coming, the bride waits to see her husband, her bridegroom, because he as he is, so are we. Let's look at this in first. John, real quick, 1 John. I love this verse in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. Great. We have, and we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. I love that. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. But this love is perfected with us, or by this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Don't miss that last phrase. It's not gonna be, God's not gonna finish up real fast upon physical death. There's no scripture that says that you're going to be, God's going to finish it up real quick so you can pass into the heavens and not get burned up in the presence of God. You're really perfect now. You're really complete now. There really is a new creation. As he is, so are we in this world now. That's why we have fellowship with him now. That's why we can go boldly to a throne of grace now. That's why he's joined to us now. That's why he's within me now. Isn't that awesome? How much more will we be 
free to run into his arms when we are loose from this earthly tent, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. With good encouragement, he says, we long, we groan to be clothed with immortality, to run into his arms because we are now as he is, even more so we shall see face to face and not by faith, not just by faith, but by sight. <laughs> okay, cool. This, look at this. This is so cool. In verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves punishment. If you're afraid of standing before the judgment seat of Christ as a believer, thinking your life is going to be examined as many teachers teach today in the body of Christ, I'm telling you, saints, it's an attack on your hope. It's an attack on the hope, the blessed hope, the boldness that you should have now in God and the confidence we have in the day of judgment. It's an attack of the enemy on the hope that God has given us in Christ. It is the fly in the ointment that the enemy wants to put. He wants to, he wants to tone down this good news. And God says, no. I tell you, God has put a sword in our mouth to be strong and bold. I like what Abby said this morning by being courageous. To be courageous. Don't be afraid if men say certain things. Search the scriptures and see if these things be so. We live in a time, I really believe, like Clark says, we live in a time of a second reformation. And second reformation believers need courage. Second reformation believers need to know the scriptures. Second reformation believers need to know a reliance on the spirit and a humility that we can hear him and encourage each other. It's awesome. Okay. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. I love that. We love because he first loved us. Okay, real quick, let's look at first, I mean, 2 Corinthians 5. Let's look at the passages, and there's not enough time to go into the details that um, would be very cool to go into a lot of the details of this, but I really encourage you to search this out, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just say this briefly, that there's only two places in the entire Bible where the phrase judgment seat of Christ is used. It's actually only one place, but in some translations, it's translated the judgment seat of Christ twice. In Romans 14 is one of these places in Romans 14 where Paul says the judgment seat of God in the New American Standard. In some translations, it calls it the, the judgment seat of Christ. So Romans 14 is a verse, and if you look at that whole chapter, read the context of what Paul is saying there. Romans 14 is, this is at the end of his Roman treatise on the covenant, the new covenant of grace. And he's, he's, he's uh, wrapping up some loose ends and at the end of his Roman letter. And basically the believers were, were beginning to judge each other and say, he's not really a believer because he doesn't do this and he doesn't do that. And they were judging each other as being believers or not believers. And Paul says, why do you judge another man's master? God is able to make him stand, and he will make him stand. Receive each other, because some were saying, I can't eat meat, and some said, I I do eat meat, or I don't worship on Sunday, and some I do. And so they were judging and saying, they're not a real believer. So Paul is simply saying in Romans 14, look, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. You judge this. Judge this that you don't put a stumbling block in your brother's path, but you leave him to God. Because if he's not, if he doesn't really belong to God, it's going to be very evident God's going to, you know, God's in charge of this thing. So that's all he's saying in Romans 14 is that we're all going to stand before God because in that place, when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 
every knee will bow, every tongue confess, as Philippians says, the children will bow the knee in great gratitude and great joy. The unbeliever will bow the knee, bow the knee in great sorrow and even gnashing of teeth, but all will bow the knee. That's what that scripture is talking about. That's why it's not, God doesn't, Jesus didn't tell the parable about the sheep and the goats and say, okay, at the, end of the, at the end of the world, God will take all the sheep together and he'll inspect the sheep. I love what Clark preached a while back, how all eyes are on the lamb, not on us. God, the, the parable doesn't go that way. It's not a parable of a bunch of sheep and God's inspecting the sheep as we've been told as the judgment, of seat, the judgment seat of Christ has been taught in the church, an examination of the Christian's life. No, it's sheep and goats. You're either in him or you're not. You're either born of him or you're not. Sheep and goats. Not a, not a, a thing where you examine the sheep. I love the way one of the parables Jesus told about the, the one who had the talents, you know, and, he, and the king comes back. And one had five talents, one had two talents, and one had one talent. And the one had five talents, invested the talents, and brought five more. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Um, You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. The next guy had two talents, and he only had two talents that he was able to produce. And the Lord says, "Um, uh, well done, exact words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many. He made a point of saying exactly the same words to the one who had a lot of fruit and the one who had a little bit of fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. He loves all of us. He's not going to examine you to see why you didn't just bring 10% or 20%. No. He on purpose, quoted the reward perfectly to each one, even though one bore more fruit. Because it's, there's this, his heart is not to, to cause you to get into this performance mentality. Now, the third guy who didn't even invest a talent, he's, he's an unbeliever, a picture of an unbeliever who didn't receive what God was giving him the gift. And, of course, the Scripture says very clearly he was thrown into outer darkness with gnashing of teeth. So that's not even close to a picture of a believer who didn't measure up or whatever. So anyway, it's just really cool to see when you see the parables, how Jesus taught. It was very clear that the believer had nothing to be afraid of whatsoever because they had received Christ. Okay. Um, All right, let's look at this real quick and then let's wrap it up. This encouraging so far? Going fast, I know. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Saints, sometimes we, we miss the forest for the trees. We don't see the forest for the trees. We can read verses and without backing up and looking at the whole context and the whole chapter and the thought of the apostle, we can lose sight of what he's really trying to say. And that's what happens many times when we, when we don't listen to the Spirit to show us what the scripture is saying. Okay, let's look at this real quick. The first four verses, Paul is talking about this incredible hope he has that one day he's gonna put on a new dwelling. He's gonna put on immortality. He's gonna be, he's gonna put off this tent of flesh and put on that which matches what's already inside of him. What's inside of him is, he, is immortal. He has eternal life. We have eternal life now. We are a new creation. What is within us will never die. Jesus said, he who believes on me, oh, we missed that last verse. That was, 
in John chapter 5, verse 24, Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 24, awesome verse, Jesus said, he who believes on me shall not come into judgment, but is already passed from death and into life. Already. We now have eternal life. So now we are immortal on the inside. We shall never die. Jesus said, you shall never die. The body shall die, but you shall never die. He who believes on me shall never die, Jesus said. We've already passed from death and into life through him. And so now Paul is in the first part of this, this chapter. He's groaning to be clothed with his immortal body so that what is, what is inside will match what is outside. He, because now he walks by faith and not by sight, but then he shall see him face to face. Then he shall be released to be all he is on the inside, what God has made him to be. And then he comes down and then he says in verse uh, and notice how he says the word, we're, we have good encouragement, we're encouraged and we're excited about this. There's no hint of any fear of stepping over to the other side. And then he says, he talks about how everyone shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what they've done in their body, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And what he's doing here, saints, he's doing the same thing he did in the Roman letter. In the Roman letter, he would set up this scenario. He'd say, hey, the... The, 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 a man is not made righteous by what he, by, just because he has the law. A man, a man is made righteous if he does the law. And he sets up this thing. If you stopped right there, you would think Paul is teaching that you can be righteous by keeping the law. But what he's saying there in the Roman letter, he's saying, he's setting this up so he could say, and there's none righteous, no, not one. So what he's saying here in the Corinthian letter, he's saying, look, we're all going to give an account before God. Each one, um, an account of what they've done in their body, whether it's, be good, whether it's been good or whether it's been bad. Then verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear or the terror of the Lord, this is not talking about Christians standing before the judgment seat of Christ to get a reward as we've been taught. There's the word reward never appears in this chapter, never appears. There's no reference to rewards in this chapter at all. What this is, Paul is saying, knowing the fear or the terror of standing before God unprepared, we persuade men. What do you persuade them to do, Paul? In fact, later in this same chapter, the, the thought of the apostle is, we beg men. We persuade men and we beg men. What do you persuade men to do, Paul? Do you persuade them to be good people, to work hard, to, to do better? We persuade men to see that if one died for all, then all died, and that he is the only hope, and that man, God, he is no, God does not acknowledge the flesh, and what we've done in our body, whether it be good or evil, means nothing to God, for even our goodness is filthy rags before God, and we persuade men to believe in this one who died for all, for if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, and in this reality, we can stand before God knowing that he himself is our righteousness for God was in Christ reconciling the whole world. That's this chapter, same chapter. God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting what they did in their bodies, whether it be good or evil, not counting any righteousness or unrighteousness for he became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. And we have myriads of scripture that teach this. And one little verse, one little verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, mistaught 
through a private interpretation, through a self-interpretation, through a man's interpretation, has put a fly in the ointment and brought fear to so many believers. When Paul, in his same thought, in his same chapter, he makes it very clear that this Christ has accomplished something so powerful that you can stand before God and know that what you did in your body, whether it be good or whether it be evil, is not the point. What does matter is, have you believed? Just in closing, saints, think about this. God hid this, even from the angels, what Christ would do. Grace is a revelation. The angels long to look into what you and I have. He hid it. Paul says it was a mystery hidden in God until Christ came. And then it was revealed in Christ. Do you think this God, this awesome Father, do you think that he, what an awesome word he hid, his son, he who spared not his only son, who delivered him up for us all, he who delivered up his only son, will he not with him freely give us all things freely? Do you think this God would allow some fine print in his contract with us, in his covenant with us? The word is clear. I will remember their sins no more. I'll be merciful to all their iniquities. God The clear sound of God's voice to you and I is, fear not. Come unto me, all you are laboring, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, we're either righteous or we're unrighteous. We're either in life or we're in death. We're either his child or we're not. We're either a sheep or a goat. We're either joined to him or not. We're either as he is or not. I love what Clark says, that God does it perfectly. He does it completely. He does it wholly. And when he says it's finished, he means it. And now this last verse, we'll close here in Jude. I love this verse in Jude where it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, that means falling from the faith, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. God is so good.